Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 81. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. No! There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294 and we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join the discussion by using the hashtag fruitloopspoddiscussion or by joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. That's right. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website, but if you can't help monetarily, no problem, babies. You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And be sure to share our show with your friends. So who are we talking about today, Beth? 
Today, we're talking about Khalil Wheeler Weaver, a man convicted of killing three women and attempting to kill a fourth in an 88-day span during the summer and fall of 2016. And this subject was suggested to us by our fruities, Tana, Monica, and Sasha, and maybe some others. Sorry if we missed you. But uh, suffice it to say, there's been a lot of interest in this case. Wow. Well, I'm excited. Yeah. Um, but before we dive into it how you doing i'm all right i i can't really complain uh still self-isolating for the most part because if anything i feel less safe after the state reopened and people are being idiots they <laughs> sure as shit are yeah. um well whew, uh everybody listening please just add me to the tippy top of your prayer lists and i would like to personally give 2020 all of the bags of dicks. Yeah. Uh, this year really sucks. And this past week was one of the worst weeks ever with what happened in Minnesota. Yeah. Old Whitey is back in the hospital again. Uh, again, the George Floyd thing uh, in the face of this pandemic, racism, issues at home with my husband's health. I am feeling rage, fear, and hopelessness all at the same time while still trying to maintain my sanity, which is out the window <laughs> so anyway um so that's where i'm at again just add me to your prayer list okay yeah, or you yeah. can venmo me or cash up the show <laughs> that will also help that would help <laughs> and buy some merch <laughs> yeah <laughs> we have new merch in the shop oh yeah so head on over to our website and uh take a look at our merch mm, please do um now we're gonna get into some listener letters well, hello, angels. Look at that. Here they are. Thank you. Well, what's in the bag, Beth? We got a message from Sophie B on Facebook, and she said, Hey, I've been trying to catch up on the podcast for the last month as I recover from bronchitis at the worst time in history to ever have bronchitis. Mm. <laughs> And in episode 41, there's talk about sex workers. And I was wondering if anyone has written to let Beth and Wendy know the problem with suggesting incels and other men committing violence against women have access to sex workers. I have been a phone sex operator, stripper, porn performer, nude model, and professional dominatrix for a while. I ran the Sex Workers Outreach Project in Spokane. Oh, Spokane. Yeah, that's where I went to high school. Yeah. Helping every type of sex worker so I have authority on this. I am now retired from that, but I wanted to put some information out there. Sex workers are, are already very vulnerable and are often victims of violence. If you put violent men with sex workers, you get abused or dead sex workers. In addition, sex workers don't exist to fix men who have anger problems. That's what anger management is for. So instead of suggesting sex workers endangering them, please suggest improvements to mental health facilities and encourage sex and gender education in schools. Things like messages targeting men to promote the agency of non-men and anti-rape messages can go far in helping to address problems of violence against women. Often serial killers who target those who are not cisgender men have a lot of sexist views to the point of anger and violence. Education as well as trying to dissolve incel movements is a much better strategy. 
to Wendy and Beth, thank you for all you do. It's nice to see people addressing race issues related to crime. It's really refreshing to listen to a crime podcast that doesn't have extreme racist biases. And uh, Sophie also gave us some safety tips, which we'll share in the How Not to Get Murdered section. That's right. Yeah. Thank you, Sophie. Yes. Hip hop air horns to Sophie. Thanks. Thank you for that message. Um, Mm -hmm. If we at any time did suggest that, we apologize. Um, Our that's not that wasn't our intention. And um, sometimes (laughs) Wendy says stupid ass shit. So um, yeah, no that that wasn't our intention. And if if we gave that impression, we want there to be safe sex work. We want all these trash ass men. Um, to get the fuck out of here or uh, take a number and uh, uh, get with the program. Um, so, um, yeah, we feel you and uh, we uh, just appreciate you um, setting us straight and giving us some more info. Yeah, thank you. Um, the next letter comes from Yazzie. Uh, Yazzie X4 on IG said, Hi, Wendy and Beth. I was wondering if you'd ever do a serial killer named Sid Ahmed Razala. He was an Algerian French serial killer who killed at least three women. I'm half Algerian myself and my father on my father's side and the suburb of Algeria he comes from is the suburb next to where my family live and dad is from Buzaria. Um, and I might be saying that very wrong, which I apologize for. Um, I always love the way you both discuss race on the podcast and delve into the cultural aspects. So it would be really interesting to hear about it from your perspectives, as well as learn more about the cultural conditions, because my dad doesn't like to talk uh, about back home a lot. My mom's the same way about her home country. Just want to add how much I love the podcast and how amazing you both are. Much love, signed Yasmin. And uh, thank you so much, Yasmin. Yeah, thank you. And hip hop air horns to you. And I, I put that guy on the list, and uh, he looks really interesting. So I, I would like to to do that subject uh, sometime in the near future. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we've got a lot of really great suggestions. So that means that we're not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the more you send us, the longer we stay. Yeah. <laughs> so now we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to dive into the story when we come back. The future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Welcome to Wild Black, a podcast all about the struggles of life while black. Authorities have released dash cam video revealing the chilling moments that led to a police officer shooting and killing Philando Castile. The only place racism doesn't exist is Fox News and the police department. Stop. I'm telling you to stop and I'm not going to tell you again. And what will you do if I don't stop? I will detain you. All I'm asking is what unit. But I don't need to tell you that information, man. If you want to come into my building. It's not your building. You're not the owner. Here's the thing. The most dangerous place for black people to live is in white people's imagination. White people's imagination. Plus all the dopeness in life while black. Our culture is just so vibrant. And that's why people are so drawn to us. This is who we are as a people. We're just some of the most powerful beings. My husband uh, was a math teacher for many, many years. He doesn't teach the Pythagorean theorem. 
He teaches the so-called Pythagorean theorem, because Pythagoras went to Egypt to learn that. This race and culture of people runs the gamut, from the lightest of the light to the darkest of the dark. We got all flavors. There's power in this skin. And if it wasn't so much power in this skin, they wouldn't be trying so hard to kill us. Mixes it with a little humor. In order to get McDonald's from your parents when you was a little shorty, what must you have? You got some McDonald's money? Damn, that's Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Do you Boom. got some McDonald's <laughs> You money. got some McDonald's money? Right. You got a McDonald's job? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. When it comes to your grits, brother, do you do salt or sugar? Sugar. That's the only way, man. I'm from Arkansas. I'm a country boy. Oh, man. We put sugar in everything. Everything. Just to remind us how powerful we are. Is something about being on a talented underdog team. The score is 450 years to zero. Do yourself and your culture a favor and go check us out on any podcast platform. Peace. Welcome to Wild Black, a seriously opinionated podcast. So we are back. Beth, who is our subject today? Khalil Wheeler Weaver, a man convicted of killing three women and attempting to kill a fourth during the summer and fall of 2016. He was only caught because the friends of the victims basically cracked the case. Remember in the summer of 2016 when we thought the world was going to change for the better? Yeah, we and, thought it was going to be great. Yeah, uh, Angela Merkel and uh, the Prime Minister of New Zealand and... Uh, who was that prime minister lady in England and Hillary Clinton would all like, just like join forces and the world would just be like this better place. Run yeah. by women. Anyway, yeah. so 2016 <laughs> was not a very good year, uh, but we're going to dive into some stats. <laughs> all right. Khalil Weaver, Wheeler Weaver, excuse me, uh, killed three women from September uh, 2016 to October 2016. Again, remember, remember the time. Do you remember the time <laughs> when we fell in love? You remember the time when we first met? Oh, uh. Anyway, uh, his victims were all young, beautiful black queens. Let's speak their names. Rest in power queens. Robin West, 19. Sarah Butler, 20. Joanne Brown, 33, and one surviving victim, 34-year-old. Uh, uh, at the time of the trial, she was referred to as TT, um, but um, she's come out, and her name is Tiffany Taylor. Uh, he was charged with 11 criminal counts, including three counts of murder, kidnapping, aggravated assault, uh, desecration of human remains, attempted murder, and one count of aggravated arson. Uh, his crimes took place in Orange, New Jersey, uh, Essex County, and some famous people from there are Whitney Houston and Queen Latifah. You know what I D-Y? Me too. Yeah. When I wore my booty, he was nasty. That's my favorite line in, in my favorite <laughs> Queen Latifah song. Anyway, so now we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, in 1666, a group of 30 of New Haven's families left Connecticut's New Haven colony and traveled by water to found a new town. They arrived on territory now known as New Jersey. Um, but guess what? People already live there. Anyway, early settlers <laughs> used hemlock trees. They didn't care. <laughs> did not care. Uh, there was a really, really funny uh, tweet uh, this week about... Um, uh, do you know who Jabuki White is? He's on The Daily Show. He's a, no. a queer um, black 
uh, young man, and he's I so don't. funny. Sorry. And he was like, um, which one of y'all countries is going to come in and like colonize us and he- help us um, become a better democracy? <laughs> like, you know, like how we did to all of you guys? Yeah. Like, is anybody going to come in like now and help us? <laughs> anyway, um, uh, they use those hemlock trees growing in the area to make uh, tannic acid for uh, tanning and boot and shoemaking factories uh, that were established. Orange became an industrial city. Orange was also on the Mount Pleasant Turnpike, so became a busy thoroughfare for travelers and had many hotels. It was once the hat-making capital of the United States. Wow. And beer was also a major industry in Orange. The United States Radium Corporation was also located in Orange. This firm refined ore and extracted the radium used to make glow-in-the-dark paint Hmm. made from powdered radium, gum, arabic, and water. And during World War I and World War II, the company produced luminous watches and gauges for the United States Army for use by the soldiers. The women who painted the watch dials, called radium girls, had been told the paint was harmless. That's what they always say, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) That it was actually good for them and would give them a healthful glow. Uh, They were instructed to point their brushes by licking them uh, to give them a fine tip. The women were instructed to do this because using rags and water took more time and material. Uh, the man doesn't like that. Uh, some also painted uh, their fingernails, face and teeth with the glowing paint. But the male lab technicians working for the very same company took precautions around the radium. Kate Moore, the author of the book The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women, maintains that the company thought of the girls as expendable and disposable. Um, are we surprised? No. Uh, okay. Uh, thank you, class. You can all be seated now. Uh, years later, after they stopped working the factories, the women started getting sick. Their teeth started to fall out. Their jawbones were brittle and broke at a light touch. And their hips locked into place. Their skin wouldn't heal. That's horrific. That's yeah. like Chernobyl shit. Like, yeah, oh, it is. nothing's happening. Everything's fine. Just keep going yeah. back to work. Anyway, yeah, apparently the human body easily mistakes radium for calcium. So all that radium that the women were licking off of the paintbrushes actually ended up in their bones like calcium would have. Their radium filled bones were being bombarded with radiation from the inside. Oh, my God, that sounds horrific and painful. Um, The company was subject to several lawsuits in the wake of the severe illnesses and deaths of workers who had ingested radioactive material. Uh, When on the stand, Arthur Roeder, the president of the United States Radium Corporation, was asked, what was the first case that you knew of? He replied, I don't remember the name. Well, that's fucking trasher. Yeah. 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 Give him... Uh, the electric chair. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I don't remember. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember. Yeah. yeah, I mean, God, these big industries—tobacco, alcohol—just don't give a are, shit. Yeah, are creating yeah. these products that are killing people. But capitalism and dollar signs. Yeah, I'm just gonna say, I don't remember. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Meanwhile, the construction of uh, interstate highways made it possible for people to move to the suburbs, but still work in the cities. White middle class residents then left cities for the suburbs all across New Jersey in one of the largest examples of white flight in the country. Yeah, I always I, I, like I I have friends who are like, yeah, I grew up in Chicago. And I'm like, oh, really? What part? And it's always like a suburb. And then suburb. I just look at yeah. them with like the hardest side. I like <laughs> your parents participated in white flight, didn't they? Didn't they? Answer me. <laughs> but that's all an internal dialogue. I don't say it out loud. You just smile. Yeah. <laughs> uh, once a multi-ethnic, economically diverse city, Orange became a majority black city. At the same time, the industries that had been the backbone of Orange had left and unemployment and poverty were very high. By 1967, nearby Newark, New Jersey, was facing similar issues as one of the United States' first Black-majority cities, but still controlled by white politicians. Black people faced discrimination in jobs and housing. Racial profiling, redlining, and lack of opportunity in education, training, and jobs led to the city's Black residents to feel powerless and disenfranchised. In particular, many felt that they had been excluded from political representation and were often subjected to police brutality. The more things change, the more things stay the same. 2020, just Mm -hmm. a few days ago. um, Yeah. Not, not, nothing has, has really changed. So, yeah. uh, do better America. Somebody save us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, may I be excused? Uh, <laughs> Uh, The Newark riot of 1967 took place in Newark, New Jersey from July 12th through July uh, 17th in 1967. It was sparked by police brutality when, man, again, when John Smith, a black cab driver for the safety cab company, was arrested on Wednesday, July 12th. He had driven his taxi around a police car and double parked on 15th Avenue and then was severely beaten by the officers who arrested him. For parking? Yeah. For double parking? Excuse me, sir? People saw Smith being dragged into the precinct and a rumor was started that he had been beaten to death while in police custody. By 11 p.m., a peaceful protest had been organized across the street from the precinct, but it soon got out of hand. Somebody was telling me about a book called um, something about like black bodies. Um, And it's just about the history of how... um, black bodies have been um vilified like there's always like oh the black guys are gonna the black men are gonna rape all of our white women or oh they're gonna rob you oh they're gonna kill us and it's like there's this real visceral fear that like um white conservatives particularly white conservatives are very afraid of they're more fearful than the rest of us yeah um and it's really unclear to me why like where it comes come comes from because there's not a lot of evidence to support yeah fear um not not concrete evidence like the stats just aren't there but their behavior is such that i mean you would think it's armageddon by you know what they're hearing on fox news and 
um, just how they're acting. Yeah, you know, the the funny thing is that um, I read an article about um, the brains of conservatives and the brains of liberals and mm-hmm. um, the brains of conservatives. Um, there's something about the brain that makes them more fearful. And and they're always accusing liberals of being fearful. And yeah, they're going to own the libs. Cowards. Yeah. Yeah. But there's something like chemicals in their brain. I, I can't remember. I wish I could, but it was something about how their brain was constructed, uh, the chemicals or hormones or something that uh, made them more more fearful in general. That is so interesting. Um, and to be clear, they are not in the majority. Um there are more black and brown people around the world and there are more progressive people um, in the United States and in the Western world than we think. Um, it's just that they're so loud. Some, they are so loud and they are so crafty and really cheaters. Um, yeah, that they they're, are. they're able to manipulate all these political systems that run all the um, all the things that we live by um, right. and have to aspire or uh, 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 subscribe to. Um, right. Just because we have to. So anyway, sorry, tangent. Yep. <laughs> At this point, accounts vary, with some saying that the crowd threw rocks through the precinct windows and police then rushed outside wearing hard hats and carrying clubs. Others say that police rushed out of their station first to confront the crowd, and then they began to throw bricks, bottles, and rocks. In any case, shortly after midnight, two Molotov cocktails were thrown at the precinct. Then a group of about 25 people went down 17th Avenue and a few store windows were smashed and merchandise was thrown onto the sidewalks. This drew larger crowds and Newark was soon engulfed in rioting. Mm. Rioting continued for three more days. Again, rioting is the language of the unheard. Um, Mm -hmm. and frustrated. Uh, As the riot approached its final hours, 26 people, mostly black, were reported killed. Another 750 750 were injured and over 1,000 were jailed. Property damage exceeded 10 million. Uh, The riot, the worst in New Jersey history, ended on July 17, 1967. Orange had the same problems as Newark. White flight leading to an eroding infrastructure and economy, a large black population, but a white government, etc. And by the end of the 70s, it had many of the urban ills normally associated with much larger cities. Uh, The population, according to the 2010 census, was just over 30,000 people. The racial makeup of the township was approximately 13% white, 72% black, 0.6% Native American and indigenous, 1.5% Asian, Asian, and 0.02% Pacific Islander. Uh, 10% were from other races and 3.33% from two or more races. Hispanic or Latino of any race were 22% of the, of the population. Um, so now we're going to get into the killer's early life. So Wheeler Weaver grew up in a good middle-class family. They lived in a comfortable split-level house in a quiet neighborhood in Orange, New Jersey called Seven Oaks. I believe his father died in 2010. It's not ever mentioned in news articles, but I found an obituary, obituary so I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. he did. His stepfather, uh, who I assume married his mom after his father died, mm-hmm. is a police detective in East Orange, and his uncle was a detective in Newark. 
Khalil Wheeler Weaver had few friends in school. He didn't play sports, rarely attended parties, and didn't date, according to classmates. Uh, He was kind of a nerd. He wore plaid shirts tucked into khakis and plain white Nikes. Uh, One friend said that he never had a girlfriend in high school. Another said that although he didn't talk much, when Khalil did talk, he could be very funny. Khalil did not get into trouble at school, and he had no criminal record. By his late teens, Khalil was a tall, good-looking young man who seemed to mature. He started to DJ at parties, and he bought a silver BMW. When a friend started dating a freshman at Rutgers, Khalil started dating her roommate. I can't remember what his DJ name was, but he spells out DJ D-E-E. J-A-Y in his yeah. DJ name. That was so funny. <laughs> That's how they used to do it back in the day. That was a long time ago, though. Really? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Because I always thought it just stood for disc jockey, like the letter D. Right. J. It does. But, but but they used to spell it out like that back in the day. Yeah. Interessante. You've heard it first, folks. Uh, this has been DJ Corner with Funny Event. Uh, so he became a security guard at a. Did I already say that? No. Okay. He became a security guard at a hotel and at a grocery store. He used his phone to explore becoming a police officer, researching the required exams and training. He, uh, but he also used his phone to research quote, homemade poisons to kill humans, unquote, (laughs) among other disturbing things. See, Google gets them every time. (laughs) So now we're going to get into the timeline. Take us there, Beth. Tiffany Taylor grew up in a public housing project in New Jersey, and drug deals, assaults, and chaos were just part of her daily life. When she was 18, she moved with her mother to Orlando, Florida, where she attended Valencia College and studied psychology and music, and she danced professionally in stage shows. Yeah, so it sounds like she's up and coming, making her Mm -hmm. way. Um, But after two years in Florida, she got pregnant, left college, and she and her mom moved back to New Jersey. There she developed a drug problem or drug abuse, um, uh, drug abuse. I just hate saying problem, but a drug abuse problem and took up sex work. Um, Tiffany met Wheeler Weaver through a friend. Uh, She was then 33 years old, living in Roselle with her mother. Wheeler Weaver was much younger. He was 20, but they sometimes hung out playing NBA 2K, um, which is a basketball video game. And she called him Youngin. That's cute. Wheeler Weaver kept asking Tiffany's friend to hook them up. Tiffany kept saying no because he was too young and he was sleeping with her friend. Mm. Wheeler Weaver began begging to pay her for sex. Eventually she said yes, but she had no intention of having sex with him. Um, Tiffany had become, become tired of men just wanting sex from her and just looking at her as a sex object. Uh, so instead... She planned to rob him. Uh, Now, again, um, you know, she's a woman trying to survive. So uh, Wheeler Weaver texted Tiffany his address, asking her to come to his parents' house in Orange. 
On April 10th, 2016, she went to his house at about 8 p.m. He paid her $200 cash, and they walked upstairs and into his childhood bedroom. Hmm. She saw a nightstand and the tiny bed of a boy. Wait, she said. I forgot the condoms in my car. Let me go get them. Tiffany walked outside and then drove away. Mm, that's smart. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if like a childhood bedroom like really like sets the mood. You that know? would like, be weird. Yeah, yeah. it's really when gets... I read that, I was like, yeah, that's a little weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't. I mean, look, uh, he's twenty. You know, she's thirty three. I just don't know. I don't know if I've done it in a childhood bedroom before. Yeah. Maybe I have and I didn't notice. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I was I was there for some official business. Uh, anyway, uh, Robin West grew up mostly with her mother, Anita Mason, in West Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground as I was spent most of my days. Uh, her parents had split up and she occasionally stayed with her father, Leroy West, a Philadelphia school district police officer and assistant church pastor. Robin, unfortunately, struggled with mental health issues, and as a teenager, she lived for a time at Wordsworth Academy, a treatment facility in West Philadelphia for young people with behavioral and mental health issues. It was there that she met her best friends, Tracy Johnson and Bernicia Patterson. Uh, she took medication for ADHD. Um, so it sounds like she's getting mental health treatment and um, medication, which all good things. Uh, but she struggled with her schoolwork, especially reading and math. Uh, she was not a problem student, though, and she was never reported to have any significant disciplinary problems. But Robin and her mother fought often, and she moved out of her mother's house when she turned 18. She then worked as an exotic dancer and a sex worker. Her friend Bernicia was also a sex worker, and they often paired up to keep each other safe. They placed ads on websites, meeting Johns at hotels in Philadelphia. In August of 2016, the two took a trip to New Jersey, staying in a motel in Union Township. On August 31st, 2016, the pair headed to Nye Avenue in Newark to make a little money. One of the first cars to stop was a silver sedan. The driver seemed nice and uh, even charming, and it was Wheeler Weaver. Who do you want? Bernicia asked. The driver pointed to Robin. She got into the car. Bernicia typed the car's license plate number into her phone. Very smart. Mm -hmm. She saved it as a contact. And as the car pulled away, Bernicia told the driver, be careful with my sister because I love her. Mm. Wheeler Weaver drove with Robin to an abandoned house on Lakeside Avenue in the city of Orange, two miles from his home. Later, it was found that uh, GPS data from his phone captured a little bit of what happened, at least where he was and how long he was there. He spent an hour inside, then left at 1.27 a.m. 23 minutes later, a neighbor called for help. The abandoned house was on fire. Wheeler Weaver was heading west. He drove a few miles on Interstate 280, then turned back. He passed his own home in Orange before returning to the fire. Five cities sent firefighters, and Wheeler Weaver watched as they fought the fire. Ooh, me. Oh, my. Um, I just think it's um, interesting that he um, sort of was um, enjoying watching. watching. Yeah. Um, yeah. In, inside the burned home, firefighters found a body. According to Matthew uh, Pisercio, a 17-year-old veteran of the Orange 17 Fire... 17-year. 
Oh, <laughs> seventy-year-old! Wow, what a what an accomplished cop! Yeah, very, yeah, very young. <laughs> According to Pasercio, he's like the Doogie Howser of detectives. Uh, a seventeen-year veteran with the Orange Fire Department and the city's lead arson investigator, it was the most destructed body I've ever come across. End quote. Therefore, the body could not be identified right away. The next day, Bernicia reported Robin missing. She gave the license plate number to Union Township Police. The plate belonged to a silver BMW. It took two weeks to identify Robin's body using dental records. Uh, she was finally identified on September 13th, 2016, eight days after her birthday. Due to the state of her remains, her cause of death could not be determined. I want to take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one. The one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network. You can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks' lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when Muda... All this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. 
When Wheeler Weaver was questioned, he told detectives that he had gone for a meal with Robin and then dropped her off at an abandoned house about two blocks from where she was found. But before detectives could make a case, another woman disappeared under similar circumstances. I just think, like, (laughs) man... People and their excuse. I drove, I took her to an, another abandoned house. She must have right. walked the other one and set her own self on fire. It wasn't me. Yeah, it uh, wasn't me. Shaggy <laughs> comes out of the bushes. It wasn't me. Wasn't me. Some hanging on the counter. Wasn't me. Wasn't Some me. doing a sofa. Wasn't me. Even caught her on camera. Wasn't me. Um, so Joanne Brown. 33 uh, was struggling with homelessness um, and also had mental health problems. Uh, she was born in Augusta, Maine, but her she had a sister and six brothers who called her Billy Joe. That's cute. When she was five, the family moved to Newark. Her childhood was hard. Joanne developed bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, but friends and family said that she still retained a lightness. Joanne graduated from Westside High School. She enjoyed fashion and styling hair. Mm. Uh, But Joanne uh, used drugs. She worked as an exotic dancer for nearly a decade, first under the street name Secret and later as London. Uh, She was also a sex worker and friends did worry for her safety. Joanne sought help. She moved into a building run by Project Live, a nonprofit group in Newark that offers housing, drug treatment, and counseling. But in an environment that relied on rules and a regular schedule to counter the chaos of the streets, Joanne struggled. And I I hear that's a common problem. Yeah, but um, I think that for... um, most people suffering from um, experiencing a lack of housing um, that uh, once you fix the housing problem, all of the other problems can be fixed. So yeah. 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 Um, So I, I totally get that she, she was struggling, but um, like the stats are there. Like if you can get these people housing, then they can, um, sort of work on resolving the other issues with mental health and, um, substance use disorder and things like that. Right. Um, what I was meaning was like when, when they go into these programs where there's these, uh, rules and regular schedules, like curfews and things Mm -hmm. like that, um, they, they struggle with that. Mm -hmm. Like if they had their own house, maybe like their own apartment where they didn't have to follow these rules, um, I don't know. I mean, it's different if you have a drug addiction, but um, for people who are homeless, mm-hmm. this can often be an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mean um, pre- preventing them from continuing to get the yes. help they need? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on October 22nd, 2016, Joanne and her friend Amina Nobles uh, were hanging out with some other friends near a Popeye's. Oh, my God. I would love some Popeye's I right know. now. Spicy um, chicken. Mm-mm-mm. Yes. Oh, my God. Another true crime story. Yes. Because people were losing their lives um, <laughs> over these chicken sandwiches. Um <laughs> but anyway, back to the story on Newark South Side. Wheeler Weaver drove up at 1.16 p.m. and chose Joanne. 
Usually when she left with a client, Joanne would call Amina to report her whereabouts and the time she expected to return. But this afternoon, another friend in the group needed to make an urgent call. So Joanne gave her phone to her friend and got into the car. Mm, man, fatal mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they drove, Joanne borrowed the man's phone. She called Amina at 1.30 p.m. Uh, cell towers recorded the phone's location to within a few meters. The destination was an abandoned house on Highland Avenue in Orange. Before driving to Popeye's, Wheeler Weaver had spent 21 minutes inside the house prepping. <gasps> he took Joanne inside He wrapped her head in duct tape from her eyes down to her chin. He strangled her with a jacket. He left her body on the landing of the stairs. At 3.03 p.m., Wheeler Weaver left. Mm. So he was, I guess, torturing her for a couple of hours, no? Yeah, so like an hour and a half. Uh, Two minutes later, he arrived at his home. Four minutes after that, he searched his phone for recent outgoing calls. He called the number at the top of the list. Amina answered. She asked, is this London? The person didn't say anything. Amina called the number back three or four times, but no one ever answered. Amina reported Joanne missing to Newark police. She always called me every day, Amina said. This time something wasn't right. Well, let's see if the police do Do anything. (laughs) Uh, Tiffany Taylor's life was unraveling. She was pregnant again. Her mother had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer and they couldn't pay the medical bills or the rent. They were evicted from their apartment and had to resort to sleeping in a car. She subsisted on hustles and cons. By November 2016, Tiffany had a new hustle. A construction worker and drug addict she knew rented a room at the Ritz Motel in Elizabeth. He let Tiffany use his car in exchange for finding dealers and buying him crack. In return, he paid her cash. So um, I guess she was his personal assistant. (laughs) Hey, man, hustling is hustling. However, whatever you got to do to get by, (laughs) whatever title you want, just as long as I can get some paper to pay some bills and eat. Yeah. Um, Meanwhile, Tiffany kept receiving texts from a stranger. In her line of work, this was not unusual. The man kept asking for sex. When Tiffany changed phones, he found her new number and kept texting. When she declined, he offered more money. Tiffany finally agreed. The date was November 15th, 2016. Her plan, steal his money, then get away. The stranger arrived at the Ritz at 7.51 p.m., It was 50 degrees, but he came dressed for snow. He wore black gloves. His eyes were framed by a black ski mask, a hat, and the hood of his black sweatshirt. I'm sorry. What kind of, what kind of date is this? (laughs) Uh, uh, Sir, um... So anyway, Tiffany did not recognize him. Uh, She knows people who wear ski masks in the cold, so she didn't find his outfit odd. And her focus was the money, right? Uh, He paid her $80 cash. Tiffany drove the two of them away from the Ritz. The man in the ski mask rode in the passenger seat. He asked Tiffany to pull over so he could urinate, but it was a ruse. Tiffany isn't sure what happened after that, but he may have hit her on the head and or slipped a date rape drug into her iced tea. In any case, Tiffany lost consciousness. When she woke up, she was in the back seat and she had a massive headache. She couldn't breathe. 
she felt his weight pinning her to the back of the, the seat of the car. She felt his arm tight against her throat, squeezing, and felt her wrists in handcuffs behind her back. Duct tape stretched around her head, covering her nose and mouth. I thought I was going to die, she, sh- she said. Tiffany Taylor was being raped. The man spoke. Don't worry, he said. He had done this before. When he finished, he would carry her body to the trunk of the car. She cried. She bit her tongue and it bled. Her tears and blood loosened the tape. Wow. Um, man, that, that's just so descriptive and detailed. Yeah. And horrifying. Horrifying, yeah. Um, the stranger removed his ski mask. Wheeler Weaver looked at Tiffany and said, Do I look familiar? You don't remember me? You took my money. Tiffany screamed, Don't kill me. Please don't kill me. I'm pregnant. I know, Wheeler Weaver said. Under the loosened duct tape, she cried. Please, the handcuffs are so tight. Could you loosen them? He did. Once he agreed to that, in my head, I said, I got him, Tiffany said. He's weak. She's pretty Mm. smart. Uh, I just, I'm like excited. Like, Wonder Woman, here she is. (laughs) Uh, She she kept talking. Uh, You texted me, remember? My phone has our entire conversation. It has your Facebook account, your address, your name. But my phone isn't here. It's back in the room at the Ritz. Oh, no, Wheeler Wheeler Weaver said. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Santa Maria. Santa Maria. (laughs) Yeah, right. We got to go back and get that phone. He loosened his grip on Tiffany's neck and moved to the front seat. Oddly, he then said, nobody wants me. Nobody likes me. Why do I have to pay for a girl to show me attention? Then he he started the car. Mm. Interesting. That's that incel stuff we were talking about. Um, Wheeler Weaver pulled into the Ritz parking lot, parked, opened the back door, and tore the duct tape from Tiffany's face. He draped a jacket across her shoulders to hide the cuffs. He explained the plan. She was to walk upstairs, and he would trail a few feet behind. She would retrieve the phone, and they would leave together. Tiffany agreed. She headed towards the room while loosening her left hand, which was double-jointed from the cuffs. She arrived at the door of the room and kicked it. Her addict friend opened it, and she rushed in, then slammed the door shut. The deadbolt locked automatically. Wow. Oh, my God. I'm just like, (laughs) this should be a movie. Um, Are you listening, Netflix? While we're in the core, please make this movie. Um, Wheeler, I'm like rooting for her. Um, Wheeler Weaver uh, ran to the door. He shouted, you lied. Come outside. Taylor opened the curtain of the window next to the the bolted door. She raised the right wrist so so he could see the handcuffs dangling, dangling from it. And Wheeler Weaver ran away. Hip hop air horns for this lady. Where are you? Man, that's exciting. Yeah. Oh, man. There's more. Seconds later, Taylor tried to lay a trap. She texted Wheeler Weaver, bring back the keys to the car and I won't call the police. But she'd already called the police and she was trying to set him up. Wheeler Weaver did return, and the motel security cameras recorded it. He ran back onto the property, dropped the keys on the motel stairs, then ran away. Mm. Officers from the Elizabeth Police Department arrived at the Ritz at 9.28 p.m. Wheeler Weaver was still there, watching the police from the shadows. He then asked his uh, phone for directions home at 9.38 p.m., and he drove away. 
Taylor described the kidnapping, rape, and attempted murder to the cops. She knew the attacker's phone number, his Facebook account, his home address. She even told the cops his full name, Khalil Wheeler Weaver. But guess what? Guess what? Yeah. Yeah. Guess what happened next? The police weren't interested. (gasps) You don't say. Uh, They accused Taylor of prostitution, which is a word we don't like to use, but cops are trash. And they threatened her with arrest. Uh, She said they they treated her like trash when really they were the trash ass people. Um, And seven days later, after Taylor escaped, Wheeler Weaver killed again. Come on, guys, get your shit together. Obviously, they didn't care about her because she was a black female sex worker and, you know, yeah, those people aren't important in the eyes of um, right. law enforcement. Right. So. On November 19th, 2016, at 3.52 p.m., Khalil Wheeler Weaver used his phone to Google date rape drugs. One hour and 53 minutes later, he used the same phone to solicit Sarah Butler for sex, offering $500. By the way, if Hillary Clinton can't get elected because of some emails... You think that you're going to get away with murder searching for this bullshit (laughs) in November of 2016 Uh, on your phone? I do not think so, sir. Uh, Sarah was a longtime dancer with Premier Dance Theater in Montclair and a lifeguard at the local YMCA. She was also a second year student at New Jersey City University, but she struggled to make friends in college and didn't get along with her roommates. (laughs) Who doesn't know that story? (laughs) Not getting along with your roommates in college? Yeah. (laughs) So Sarah had created an account on Tagged, a social media site users describe as a place to find companionship. There, a man who called himself Liliot Rock... messaged her soliciting her for sex he offered to pay her money for sex and asked her how much she wanted she said five hundred dollars he agreed and they made plans to meet you're not a serial killer right lmao Mm. laughing my ass off sarah Uh messaged lil yacht rock no he replied yeah i remember when we reported on this um right and i think one of our news segments in in like an older season and it was just this is just a wild story yeah um so he said no and then i guess i mean what do you like i don't know i just you would ask that question get the response you want and then be like okay okay (laughs) yeah yeah that's fine i mean in all seriousness i mean who would expect anybody to answer yes? Like if he had answered yes, you'd be like, you're joking, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and I got the idea that she was kidding around, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, hence the LMAO. Thank you for right, giving us the definition. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, so he wanted to meet soon. He said he needed to leave work uh, or leave for work. Sarah agreed to meet, but at the last minute, she lost her nerve and stood him up. Two days later, she reconsidered. Sorry about the other day. I got really nervous. Butler texted. I felt like an ass, but your voice and your pick don't seem like a match. Little Yacht Rock. Uh, I know responded um I was just thinking what would our rap names be like Lil Wendy (laughs) Lil Lil Beth um I I, I don't know (laughs) I don't think so um but you can go to the um Wu-Tang Wu-Tang name generator and like put in some information and you can you can come up with your very own Wu-Tang inspired rap name 
that's how Childish Gambino got his name oh, from a Wu Tang right. name generator. Yeah. So Lil Yacht Rock responded, I'm a really cool guy when you get to know me. Sarah was home for Thanksgiving when on November 22nd, 2016, she told her mother she was going to meet a friend and asked to borrow her van. Thinking nothing of it, her mother agreed and said goodbye. Sarah picked up Lil Yacht Rock at the address he provided, the abandoned house where Joanne Brown's body lay on the second floor landing where he had left her exactly one month before, her face still wrapped in duct tape. It was 9.55 p.m. They drove to a 7-Eleven store a few blocks away. She stayed in the minivan. He got out and purchased condoms. Security cameras captured his outfit, the same one he wore to attack Tiffany Taylor. A black sweatshirt with the hood pulled low over his face, black sweatpants, black sneakers, and tight-fitting black gloves. At 10.07 p.m., they drove away. They drove up the wooded hillside of Eagle Rock Reservation on uh, an Essex County Park in West Orange. There near a cliff with the panoramic view of Manhattan is where Wheeler Weaver murdered Sarah Butler. After he killed her, Wheeler Weaver dragged her body behind the trailer near a restaurant. He was sloppy. He allowed her heels to carve parallel trenches in the soft ground. He left sweatpants tied tightly around her throat. And when he removed the packing tape from her head, it ripped out her red hair extension and he put the tape back inside the van. On December 5th, 2016, a pair of contractors arrived at the abandoned house on Highland Avenue. The home's owner had requested an estimate to fix it up. The workers scouted the first floor, then walked upstairs. At the landing, the first man stopped. Boss, he said. I think somebody's sleeping in here. It was Joanne. Now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth. If the police had done their goddamn jobs when Tiffany Taylor reported her rape and attempted murder, Sarah Butler's life could have been spared. Mm -hmm. But it was because Sarah Butler was murdered that police finally became interested in the case. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. This is why I call them messy-ass hoes. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
Butler was a deviation from Wheeler's other victims as she was not a sex worker and did not struggle with mental health issues. His strategy seems to have been to select women who were vulnerable and quote unquote wouldn't be missed. But Sarah was a college student and she was close to her family. When Sarah Butler did not return home with the van, her sister Basanya Daly started texting friends asking if anyone had seen her. In the morning, her mother Laverne Butler tried to call Sarah. Her calls went to voicemail. On November 25th, three days after Butler went missing, one of Basanya's Basanya Daly's friends spotted the blue minivan behind a former factory, four miles from Butler's street, six blocks from Wheeler Weaver's house. Police arrived at the scene, as did Basanya and a friend, Lamia Brown. The cops hadn't yet noticed Butler's red weave, but Basanya did. Lamia Brown let out a scream. She pointed to the hair extension. Butler's body was not found, and the police did little else to investigate. The women decided to take matters into their own hands. Shout out to these black queens. Mm -hmm. Uh, They drove home and opened up Sarah's laptop. Lamia knew the passwords, so they searched for Sarah's email and Facebook. Basanya's friend, Samantha Rivera, joined them. They logged into Butler's account on Tagged. They saw she had been chatting with a man called Liliat Rock. Samantha Rivera created a profile on Tagged using someone else's photo and a fake name. Lil Yacht Rock's profile was among the first to appear. Samantha clicked a button on his profile, sending him a thumbs up. In the days after Sarah went missing, Basanya and her friends spent a lot of time at Montclair Police Headquarters giving statements and waiting for news. Um, They were standing inside the station on November 26th when Rivera received a text on tag. Uh, It was Lil Yacht Rock. He began by offering cash for sex. He said his name was Taj. He needed to meet soon, he said, before he left for work. Immediately, the women were suspicious. Lil Yacht Rock wanted to meet Samantha soon. Do you want me to stop on by? Samantha had to think fast. She was doing her hair, she said. She had a baby at home, so she couldn't leave until her sister arrived. But she wanted to meet for sex, she said, and she was desperate for money. I live with my sister right now and don't want to be here, she told him. I want to be somewhere else. Eventually, Samantha said she would meet Little Yacht Rock, Lil Yacht Rock, excuse me, uh, (laughs) at Panera Bread in Montclair, a mile from police headquarters. After hanging up, the women went to the cops in the station and described the planned meeting. The three women stayed there. Police sent two detectives instead. Confronted at Panera Bread, Lil Yacht Rock gave the officers his real name, Khalil Wheeler Weaver. The police would later say that They had no body, no evidence of a crime, no reason to consider him a suspect, so they let him go. Oh, my God! You guys stink! (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, authorities were following the trail of Butler's iPhone, which sent its last location ping from Eagle Rock Reservation the night she disappeared. And on December 1st, 2016, police found her body lying in weeds and covered by leaves next to the trailer. Thanks to the efforts of Basanya Daly and her friends, police already had a suspect, and five days after Butler's body was discovered on December 6, 2016, Wheeler Weaver was taken into custody. Afterwards, police officers searched his bedroom and found two cell phones on the nightstand beside his bed. A third was discovered under his mattress. 
Wow. Three phones is a Mm -hmm. lot. Uh, Wheeler Weaver had used his cell phone to learn how to create drugs, uh, to knock someone out, and how to use household chemicals like bleach and ammonia to kill people. His searches included how to make homemade poisons to kill humans and what chemical could you put on a rag and hold someone's face to make them go to sleep immediately? He also searched online for ways to erase digital evidence. But at the same time, he was seeking information on how to become a police officer, including a search for a police entrance exam practice test. Can you imagine if he had become a police officer? Yeah. Um, just how dangerous he could have been? Um, yeah, actually, uh, quite a few serial killers have looked into becoming police officers. So, Very yeah. disturbing. I would not say that's uncommon. Yeah, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Just uh, get rid of all policing. Start from scratch and build it up um, to be something that we can be proud of. Um, anyway, prosecutors took three years to investigate Wheeler Weaver's crimes before bringing their case. Some reports referenced something called a Zephyr machine that was used to get data off Wheeler Weaver's cell phone, but we couldn't authenticate that information. Um, so now we're going to tell you about the trial of Mr. Khalil Wheeler Weaver. So public defender Deirdre McMahon told the jury that Wheeler Weaver did not deny being with the victims before they disappeared. Just a crazy coincidence, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) He'd left them safe and then cooperated with numerous police departments as a person of interest after the women were reported missing. That is not the conduct of a guilty individual, McMahon said. (laughs) Uh, Well, uh, I, I... Don't see this later on in the script, Um, but Diedrich McMahon was not his first attorney. His first attorney, I believe, was somebody, a private attorney who he or his family hired. Oh, okay. But um, they couldn't pay her. And so then he got the public defender defender. by the time his trial came. Um, So Tiffany Taylor was the star witness of the trial. Um, Again, we gave her hip hop air horns earlier, I think. Uh, she, uh, <laughs> but why not again? Why not? Uh, yeah, she showed the jury her rage. Um, and by the way, welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Rage is typically not an emotion that black women are or women of color are allowed to show because we tend to be labeled as hysterical or angry. Um, but this is an instance when it was completely appropriate and necessary, and she was incredibly courageous in her testimony. Um, there were photos blown up demonstrating her injuries to the jury. Uh, and again, it was really courageous of her to go and report the police and my understanding is when they disregarded her she ended up somehow taking her claims to the prosecutor's office wow. and then, then the butler case happened and so there, there was a lot of momentum bef- behind this guy getting caught and tiffany yeah. taylor was a big part of it yeah that's great Basanya daly also testified at trial Adam Wells, the lead Essex County prosecutor, said of Tiffany Taylor, Bernicia Patterson, Amina Nobles, Basanya Daly, Lamia Brown, and Samantha Rivera. These women are the quote-unquote true heroes of this case. You're damn right they are. Yeah. 
So on December 19th, 2019, within three hours, a jury found Wheeler Weaver guilty on all counts, including three counts of murder for killing Sarah Butler, uh, who was 20, Robin West, 19, and Joanne Brown, who was 33, between August and November 2016, as well as the kidnapping, sexual assault, and attempted murder of Tiffany Taylor. The jury also convicted Wheeler Weaver of three counts of desecration of human ra- remains and aggravated arson. Um, so now we're going to get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. Taylor's unborn daughter nearly died from Wheeler Weaver's chokehold. Five months after after the attack, she was born and she was healthy. This April, she turns three. After what he did to me, Tiffany said, I'm scared for both of my daughters. I feel like he still won because I'm not the same person I used to be. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, I guess you could say he, he didn't physically murder her, but he definitely killed killed the maybe the woman that she was at the time and who knows um, what she, what she could um, be now if she hadn't um, suffered this traumatic event, but she's still here today and we are really grateful for that. Yeah. And she's Um, been really strong. Yeah. Robin West's father, Leroy West says that justice has been done, but nobody won. Five families were destroyed. The three families of the murder victims, Tiffany Taylor's life will never be the same. And Wheeler Weaver's family will never be the same as well. Wheeler Weaver's parents by, uh, still lived in the same house as of his trial in December, 2019. I don't know if that's still true in May of 2020. During the trial, Sarah Butler's father, Victor Butler, and Khalil's mother, Yundra Wheeler-Weaver, ended up on, on the same elevator when leaving the courthouse. Butler extended his hand, introducing himself to a visible, visibly shaken Wheeler-Weaver. When she began crying, he put his arm around her, saying a few times, It's okay. Butler later said, We can't change what happened. It doesn't help to hold onto anger and hatred. Wow. Yeah. Man, the people in this story are, are fantastic. Tremendous. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. No, um just their strength. It's, uh, like, who? Yeah. I'm just telling the story. I can imagine <laughs> listening at home. Wow. Uh so Khalil Wheeler is now 23 years old. Um and we've been un- unable to find out like where he is currently incarcerated, what his life is like, if he's Appealing, all that stuff. Um, but now we're going to get into what we think made Khalil Wheeler Weaver snap. So um, he seemed to have an attitude similar to incels, like you mentioned earlier. Although mm-hmm. friends reported that he did have sexual partners, and maybe he was frustrated that he did not have or maybe he could not keep a girlfriend. He expressed frustration to Tiffany Taylor that nobody liked him and he should not have to pay for female companionship. And he did have an attitude that these women were disposable and would not be missed. Maybe Mm -hmm. after Tiffany robbed him, his anger came to the surface and he decided to kill some women. He did eventually seek her out specifically. So I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. but this guy kind of reminded me of Ted Bundy, a good looking Mm. guy who was calm and collected when speaking to the cops. Some of the cops Mm -hmm. said that at first they dismissed him as the killer because he quote unquote, didn't seem the type. Mm. There's this debate in psychology about if serial killers are created by nature or nurture. 
um like mm. is it the are they born are that they, way right or, or how they were brought yes up. exactly and i i think it's a little of both i i don't think mm-hmm. it's one or the other but in this guy's case i would probably lean more heavily on the nature side because um mm. we although we don't know much about his childhood there could be something in there but um mm-hmm. These kinds of cases fascinate me because the murderous intent seems to spring out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, I love the part of the story where the women solved the damn thing. (laughs) Yes. Yes, they did. And really brought this guy to justice. Like, um, and there was so many um, black women who Mm -hmm. did that. Um, So I just think that that is great. Give them all of the awards and all the hip hop air horns. Um, I don't know what made him snap. I agree with Beth. It just kind of seemed like sudden. He, this yeah. Made it, yeah, sudden. Um, he didn't have a criminal criminal history that we know of. Um, he, as far as we know, did a good job as a security guard. He even had his little DJ hobby. He was DJ Blackout was his DJ name. Uh, maybe he had an issue with women. Um, 2016 was, as I said, a very jarring year for all of us. Um, a really important theme that stood out to me in the story is how meaningless and disposable black women's bodies are in America. Even when we speak up directly to law enforcement, as Miss Taylor did with evidence on her body and her person about what happened to her, she was seen as a criminal criminal who put herself in a risky situation as a sex worker. And what happened to her was uh, not deserving of their time as public servants. Uh, What we really need to do is, is examine why did these women and others like her have to turn to sex work? What societal and systemic problems led them to that place in order to survive? Was it redlining, poor education due to low income taxes for the schools they went to, lack of opportunity, lack of resources or social safety nets or protections that exist for white people or the middle class, the 1%, we do not know. But people should take a look. Yes, um, I agree, one hundred percent. Good point. That's that's why you are one of my favorite white ladies. Oh, I have a very short list. No, no, no. I, the list is very short. That's at the top. Um, I was gonna like Meryl Streep's on there, and I can't really think of anybody else. Uh, Minnie. Um, Oh yeah, Minnie. Yeah, just just you three, man. Some of our so, uh, me, Minnie, and Meryl Streep. Yeah, that's that's all I can think of. Uh, well, I, I'm proud to be one of those. Yeah, I'm open to suggestions. Um, but uh, you know, uh, yeah, it's it's a tight, it's a very tight. Uh, it's a, it is, it's an exclusive club. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would, I would say like, I wouldn't refer to you guys as like white people. Like you are just people who just happen to be white. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So 
If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Uh, so, uh, in this COVID-19 times, uh, everyone is suffering, some more than most. PTSD, hunger, unemployment, homelessness are affecting so many people today. Um, uh, I meant We meant to record last week, old Whitey and his many health problems kept us from doing that. Uh, but if you are a renter and affected by COVID-19, either by illness or job loss, you should know that there are protections that landlords don't want you to know about that may buy you some time and keep you from losing your shelter, um, which is a way to stay alive and not get murdered. Uh, Go to don'tgetkickedout.com. Again, that's don'tgetkickedout.com for information, laws, protections, and resources for renters um, for your individual state in the U.S. so that if you can't pay your rent or you you might be able to get some help or buy yourself some time. That's what I got. What do you got, Beth? Um, Well, as promised, these are uh, the safety tips from Sophie on Facebook. She Mm -hmm. says, I used to host safety meetings for sex workers and a few other tools people can use on dates is allow people to track you using Mm. Google Maps or Waze. You can set Mm -hmm. a certain location as your destination and then text a friend with a link so they can track where you are relative to that destination. There Mm -hmm. are also panic alarm buttons for your phone. Also, set up a group text on your phone to multiple people who are your safety people. Let these people know when you are leaving and when you should be back. Tell them exactly where you expect to be and text updates whenever you change locations. A date that understands the importance of your well-being should be fine with this. So it is also a great way to filter out the dick bags. (laughs) (laughs) yes i love it yeah also ask your date for a picture before you go with them send a picture of him to your friends have Mm -hmm. a safety plan and give it to your friends it needs to include contact numbers for your significant other your counselor doctor and any other important to you number also include a list of favorite hangouts and weekly activities if you're a sex worker tell someone what platform platform you use to make arrangements with clients. This is tricky because you may not want it in writing. Instead, just remind the friend a few times or have them make a note to themselves with the name or names. Yeah, those are some fire-ass yeah. tips. Yeah, thank you, thank so- you Sophie. Was, it's Sophie, right? Yeah. 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 Thank you, Sophie! Um, so now we're going to get into the shout-out portion of our show, um, where we shout-out any content by people of color or any true crime goodies so uh there's a true crime netflix mini docuseries called trial by media have you seen it yet i haven't it's really good 
Um, in this true crime docuseries, some of the most dramatic trials of all time are examined with an emphasis on how the media have impacted jury verdicts. They cover a wide range of cases from that black man who was shot in New York 40 times in front of his home by police uh, to that guy on Jenny Jones who killed another dude who had a crush on him and outed him on TV uh, to that Illinois governor, Rob Blagojevich, for his fuckery. So wow. that's pretty entertaining. Yeah, it sounds uh, interesting. Show to take your mind off things and get, you know, what your true crime was. <laughs> so my uh, shout out is uh, Lisk, the Long Island serial killer podcast. It mm. gets deep into the lives of the victims, most of whom were sex workers. In one particular episode, they talked to a sex worker and she recounts how she was forced into the trade and it's heartbreaking. And mm. uh, it's a really good show to go along with this story because mm. they uh, really talk about the victims, like get deep into their their lives. And uh, it's really good. So color me subscribed. <laughs> um, done and done. All right. Uh, so, well, oh, so sad. The show has come to an end. But where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment even a dollar would help and as always we have merch for sale on our website that's right now this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every thursday so until next time look alive guys it's crazy out there Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. 
U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. 